Let's continue to worship the Lord through the study of His Word. And I ask you to take your Bible, if you wouldn't mind, and let's, uh, let's go all the way near the end of your Bible to the, to the epistle of 1 John as we continue our study series, um, Being Real Christians in an Unreal World. And uh, we're in chapter 4 this morning, 1 John chapter 4. Uh, there's a note page in your bulletin. We'll ask you to grab that. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'd be glad to share one of those with you as well. The date was January 24th. The year was 1848. A carpenter named James Marshall was building a water-powered sawmill for John Sutter on the American River near Sacramento. He looked down into the water one morning and he saw glittering flakes of gold. That's right. Gold in those hills and in those streams. The news of this discovery, as you know, spread like wildfire, launching what would come to be known as the 49ers gold rush. That rush would see more than 300,000 people leave everything behind for the gold fields of California and the promise of instant wealth. Every 49er dreamed of the day when they would, would get to cry out, Eureka! Right? Eureka, which was a simple, sim, uh, single, simple little Greek word meaning, I found it. Eureka! It summed up every gold prospector's consuming passion, the thrill of striking pay dirt. However, most would-be prospectors would, would quickly learn that not everything that glimmers golden is actually gold. Riverbeds and quarries and mines could be full of gleaming golden specks that turned out to be absolutely worthless. Known as fool's gold or uh, iron pyrite, miners had to be extremely careful to distinguish it from the real thing. Their livelihoods, their futures depended on not being fooled by the fool's gold. And so trained miners would usually be able to distinguish uh, pyrite from real gold, but not always. And so they would come up with tests in order to be able to determine whether what they had found was real gold or whether it was fool's gold. And one of those tests involved biting the rock in question. Because real gold is softer than the human tooth, uh, you could tell if it bent or molded, then it was real gold. Um, if it was fool's gold, you couldn't do that. And my guess is maybe that dentists were the real money makers in 1849. <laughs> a second test involved scraping the rock on a piece of white stone. If it was real gold, it would leave a yellow streak on the white rock, while fool's gold would leave a kind of a greenish black mark. And if those tests proved inconclusive, you could always put heat to the rock and it would release the gold as it would melt out of the stone if it was real. The point is that, that miners relied on tests to authenticate uh, their finds because both their fortunes and their futures depended on the results being accurate. Now, spiritually speaking, brothers and sisters, you and I, as devoted followers of the Lord Jesus, can often find ourselves, I believe, in a, in a similar position to the California gold rushers. When confronted with various doctrines or religious teachings or spiritual belief systems that are scattered across the world, all of which claim to be true, 
we must be able to tell what's real and true from what is false and not true. And as with the gold rush, just because something religious, uh, teaching, a spiritual claim glimmers and shines, that doesn't make it legitimate. That doesn't make it true. Real Christians must always be alert and on the lookout for spiritual fool's gold. They must not accept something as true without first testing it to see if it meets God's approval. If a religious claim fails the tests, real Christians are going to throw it out and they will instantly know that it's false and they will warn others that it is false as well. But if it passes the tests, well then they keep that truth because it's consistent with God's word and those believers embrace that, they endorse it and they pass it on. California gold prospectors would cry Eureka, but only when they found true gold. And when it comes to things spiritual, real Christians will be careful to do the same. Cry out, we found it, but only when it is real, when it is true. So church family today, we step into the first six verses of what is a brand new chapter for us in our ongoing study series, chapter four. We've not been here yet. And having just mentioned the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in real Christians' lives in the last verse of chapter 3, John is prompted now to think about the unholy work of evil spirits. He's thought about the Holy Spirit. Now he, he thinks about evil spirits and, and, and their activity in the lives of false teachers. And so we want to kind of move in that direction now. Let me introduce us to this passage. I'll read and, and you can follow along. Here's what John writes next. <clears throat> he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And may the Holy Spirit bring his word to life for us in the moments that we have left together. Now, as you may recall, one of the driving motivations that caused John to write this letter, this little epistle of 1 John, was because an extremely dangerous false teaching was gaining traction in late first century Asia Minor, a teaching that we have come to know of as Gnosticism. It's still alive and well in our world today. It goes by different names uh, much, much of the New Age thought in our time is consistent with Gnosticism. This false teaching was making major inroads into uh, Asia Minor and into Christian churches. And not only was it confusing those who were already fully committed to Jesus, it was drawing no small number who were still not committed to Jesus away from him and away from the church. And so it was a serious threat. 
The promoters of this new teaching claim to have had a higher or a a deeper spiritual knowledge from God and an inside track into true faith. The three main distinguishing features of this new and higher way to God was the first and the most dangerous of their teachings was that, that Jesus was not fully God and fully man. He was not the God-man. And, of course, we know that's a, a, a tremendous heresy, but it was at the heart of Gnostic teaching. Jesus was not the Christ. He is, he's not fully God and fully man. Second, they taught that all sin resides in the realm of the material, the realm of what is, is matter. You can, you can feel it. You can touch it. Uh, and since people are spiritual beings, essentially held prisoner in a body, well, then you can really do anything you want in your body because the real you is spiritual. And, of course, we know that that gave free reign to do just about anything that you wanted to do. And so Gnosticism gave you a free pass to sin. And, of course, when you have a sin nature, that's a very appealing thought, isn't it, to the old nature? Oh, I can sin and be okay with God. Well, third, this brand of false teaching fostered an exclusive, isolating air among the Gnostics. They were devoid of tenderness, devoid of compassion or love for anybody who didn't agree with them. And, of course, this was totally inconsistent with what Jesus said. We're to love God and we're to love each other as a distinguishing mark of being a real Christian. And so by the late first century, this false teaching was was really worming its way into the churches of Asia Minor that were under John's care and confusing and deceiving many people and drawing them away from Jesus, away from the biblical faith, the Christian faith. And so John writes this letter, Holy Spirit-inspired, so that the church in the first century and the church in the 21st century would always have a way to tell the fake from the real. And so in keeping with that overarching goal then, John says once again, verse 1 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false teachers have gone out into the world. We can almost hear John saying, Brothers, sisters, beloved, real Christians must always be discerning, always be alert, always be on the lookout for spiritual fool's gold. That's essentially what he says in verse 1. Do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Now, you and I hear that line, that statement, and we might, you might be inclined to say, you know, Tim, uh, that, that, this way of speaking sounds kind of strange to me. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Well, now let's remember that we're separated by 2,000 years from the way that people spoke in the late first century in Asia Minor. Terms that they used then and that were common to them, well, they're not so common to us. Don't forget that this was, it was only just a couple of decades ago that everyone uh, wanted to have a groovy time. Remember that? If you remember that, it dates you. It dates me. That's really groovy, man. You remember that? Groovy, that? No. <laughs> well, you're fortunate and younger. Now, that just sounds silly today. We don't use that term anymore, but there was a time in our culture when groovy meant something really good, and, and you wanted to be a part of that. The language and the terms changed, but the basic 
concepts remain consistent. So you'll, you'll notice that the words spirit and spirits in verse 1 are not capitalized, letting us know that John's not thinking here about the Holy Spirit. He's using the word spirit to describe a teacher or a pastor or a professor or maybe a, a spiritual author. Beloved, do not believe every teacher, but test the teachers to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets, many false teachers have gone out into the world. And so what John is doing essentially in verse 1 is dividing all teaching and all faith claims and all religious belief systems in the world into two broad categories. That which is true and that which is false. And what is not true, what is not true includes everything that's almost true. It includes everything that is somewhat true. It includes everything that is at times true. All of it is not true, right? Beloved, test the teachers. What is true will always be true all of the time. There's spiritual fool's gold out there. Know the true from the false. John is saying that it's imperative that every Christian be discerning. Really discerning, especially in our day with so much that bombards us uh, through the media and through all the technology and the avenues that, 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 that ideologies and religious beliefs and all can come into our lives. For him, all teaching flows either from the spirit of God or from the spirit of error, as verse 6 says. In fact, he says there's also the spirit of Antichrist out there. In verse 3, God is true and all that he says is true. Satan, the father of lies and the one who is over the demonic realm, he speaks only the lies subtly and deceptively counterfeiting the truth. He's the champion of fool's gold. In fact, do we not see Satan's basic strategy, his essential tactics for attacking, attacking God's truth from the very moment that we encounter him for the first time in Scripture. If you were to go all the way back with me to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis and to chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, there let's recall, let's just recall that Satan mounts a three-pronged assault against Eve and Adam and the truth that God had spoken to them. In chapter 3, you remember in verse 1, he casts doubt on what God has said about eating from the tree of life. Verse 1, he says to Eve, did God actually say, did God actually say that, that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, that's not what God said at all. He says you'll not eat from one tree, right? Yeah, but doubt is placed in, in Eve's mind. Secondly, in verse 4, he presents a, a, defi a defiant denial of what God had clearly said. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God said, if you eat of the tree of life, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will, you will die. You will die. The serpent said, no, you won't die. And finally, he brings a veiled distortion to what God has actually said to Adam and Eve in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened 
And you will what? Oh, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Doubt, denial, distortion. Satan sets the fool's gold before Adam and Eve, and they are thoroughly taken in by it. And from that moment on, Satan and his demonic forces have waged a relentless, nonstop campaign against God's truth. Still using the same time-tested tactics of doubt and denial and distortion. And this is why we hear the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul say in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, in our time, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Because these ancient supernatural spirits um, are experts in deception, when they, take, uh, when, when, when they step into the life of a false teacher, man, what you're going to get is distortion, denial, and doubt. Those will be the vehicles. That's the false, the false or, the, or the, the fool's gold. Now, at the bottom of your note page, Paul would be in full agreement with John, saying in Ephesians 4.14 that Christians have to be discerning. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. We've got to be discerning, Paul says. Any ideology, any philosophy, opinion, or religion other than God's truth, man, that's, that's part of Satan's agenda, whether by doubt, denial, or distortion. Beloved, do not believe every teacher. Don't believe every pastor. Don't believe every author or professor. But test them, he says, to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, that word that John uses for test here in this verse, it's the Greek verb dokimazo. And it's a word that originally came out of the field of metallurgy. And it was a word that, 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 that was used when you were going to assay uh, a metal or test it with fire. And you would, you would purify the metal and you would, you would assess its value. Well, that's this Greek word, test. And so John uses the present tense of that verb to indicate that you and I are to continually, all the time, be testing the teachers, the pastors, the professors, the, the spiritual writers to see if they are from God. Real Christians are to be continually evaluating any spiritual message, no matter how it comes to them, whether they see it or hear it or read it, and determine its origin. Is this from the Spirit of God, or alternatively, is this a deceitful spirit? Is this a a teaching of demons, as we read a moment ago? And there's an urgency. You can just sense there's an urgency in John's instruction here. Not just a few, but, but many, he says. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. And what that betrays is that Satan isn't just simply trying to oppose God today. He wants, genuinely wants, to deceive you and me. He wants to lead you and I away from God. He'll do that in any way that he can. To the end that his minions have, and really his, 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 his minions, his teachers, his, his professors, they've, they've entered into all parts of our life, denominations, 
churches, Christian schools, Bible colleges, seminaries, parachurch organizations. False teaching has gotten into those places and brought ruin and error as the outcome. So test the spirits, John says, to see whether they're from God for many false teachers have gone out into the world. Now, IBC family, what is the only true, reliable way to test any spiritual message? You held up your Bible, didn't you, Diane? God's Word, right? You all in agreement? Absolutely. God's Word is the only reliable way to test a spiritual message. It must be measured against the Word of God as it has been revealed to us in Scripture. If you flip your note page over at the top, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, two verses that you know well, maybe you've memorized them. It says that all Scripture is what? It's breathed out by God. It means it's inspired by God. It is, it is authored by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for four things. Teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God, the people of God, may be what? Complete, complete, equipped for every good work. God's word is the ultimate resource we have for knowing God and for knowing how to live for him. Jesus said it well in the script that on the night before he was crucified when he prayed in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them, set them apart, make them holy in the truth. Your word is what? Your word is the truth. Your word is the truth. And then Scripture calls the, the, the word of God the sword of the spirit. Remember that? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, the word of God supplies us with the primary weapon that we have to do battle with our enemy, whose name is Satan, and all of his lies. And then in Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is so much that is not gold out there. John would have us learn to discern and test every spiritual message that we hear. We would be right on target if we would would do what the ancient Bereans did. We're told about them in Acts chapter 17. Uh, Paul comes into Berea, which was a, a Greek city, and he tells the people about Jesus for the very first time they hear about Jesus. And then this we read this about the Bereans. Verse 11, Acts 17. Now the Bereans received the word with great eagerness, examining the what? The scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The Bereans are a great example for us. John would have commended them to us. This is the way you do it, John would say. Go to the Word and see if the message that is being proclaimed lines up with the Scriptures. Now, knowing that his Christian friends are under attack and ever committed to offering up practical help, John now, in verses 2 through 6, sets before us three tests that we can use to assess, remember that Greek word, dokimazo, three tests that we can use to assess anyone's message, their claim to be a teacher of spiritual truth. 
And this is kind of a unique little section because everything that we have been studying so far has been about how we can tell a real Christian from a fake Christian. But here, John helps us tell the real teacher from a false teacher. If you and I are diligent to apply the three tests that he sets in front of us here, we'll always be able to distinguish between true spiritual riches and spiritual fool's gold. So the first test is supplied to us in verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming in, coming and now is in the world already. So the first test that you and I would apply to any teacher's teaching, any pastor's preaching, is, is going to be a doctrinal test. Or to be more precise, it's going to be a Christological test, isn't it? The test he asks us to, 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 to put before someone is to ask them this question. What do you actually teach about Jesus? That's the first test. What do you, teacher, teach about Jesus? Now, the verb confesses in verse 2 means to say the same thing. Every teacher, every pastor, every professor, every spiritual writer who agrees with the scriptures that Jesus Christ is God who has come into the world into, in human flesh is a teacher who is speaking you truth. He or she is confessing a truth that is taught by the Holy Spirit and it is contained in the word of God. Jesus is God incarnate. John doesn't have to say any more than that here because he has already earlier in this letter supplied a fuller, more complete Christological confession. In fact, let me take you to that. Go all the way back to chapter 1 and find verse 1 because this is how John opens his letter. If you remember way back to the start of our series. This is all about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Who's the word of life? It's Jesus. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Man, right out of the blocks, the first opening words of this letter, it's all about Jesus. Who he is. He's one with the Father. He comes from the Father as the living Son of God. He he takes on flesh, becoming fully human as the second person of the Trinity. And by the way, any true presentation of the real God is going to be a Trinitarian presentation, isn't it? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if it's not that, that's a false teacher. According to the plan that God had in place before he ever sent his Son into the world, Jesus comes in the flesh so that he can die a substitutionary death for sinners like you and me. He puts on our flesh because he can only redeem us if he becomes one of us, right? And so John repeatedly emphasizes the deity of Jesus in his writings and says any real teacher is going to teach this about Jesus. He is God. He is God in the flesh. And he died for you and rose again. In fact, 
Go to chapter 2. Again, a place we've already been over before, but let's remind ourselves, 22-23 of chapter 2, John says this to us, Who is the liar? Who's the false teacher? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. In other words, you cannot honor God the Father if you don't honor who? Jesus. And if you honor Jesus, you are honoring the Father. To be saved, one must believe that Jesus is eternal deity, the second person of the Godhead who became a man who died for sinful mankind and rose again. He's not merely a created being. Like the Gnostic teachers were wanting to say, in the first century, and he is not a created being like modern-day false teachers amongst the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses want to say today, that's not the true Jesus, is it? No, no. Every spirit, every teacher promoting any religion or philosophy that does not confess the Jesus of Scripture is not from God. And you can stand on that. Such a teacher or a pastor is false teacher, heretical. They've rejected Jesus. In fact, John calls such a teacher one who has the spirit of the Antichrist. That's a strong statement, isn't it? That is a strong statement in verse 3. If you've been a Christian for very long, chances are good that you have heard or read from the Bible about a satanically empowered figure who is going to appear on the world stage in the not-too-distant future, we believe. And he will be the personification of hatred for God, the personification of hatred for Jesus. Everything that God stands for, everything that Jesus stands for, the Antichrist is going to oppose. But John says that the same Jesus-distorting, Jesus-denying spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world, showing itself plainly by those who teach falsely about Jesus. They see and hear the true nature of Jesus being denied by false teachers in the systems that they promote. The Apostle Paul left no doubt about these, the spirit of Antichrist false teachers when he writes to the Corinthian church family and he says this. This is 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Jesus isn't essential. Jesus isn't important. Jesus isn't the God-man who came and died. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord. Genuinely say that. Except they do that by the Holy Spirit. Those who rightly understand the Jesus of the Bible and portray him and his work accurately prove that they possess the spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth ushers us into the second test that John shares with us to prove real teachers from false ones. It's verses 4 and 5. Real teachers live a Holy Spirit-directed life. You and I can apply that test to every teacher. Little children, you're from God and you've overcome them, the false teachers, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world 
listens to them. John is saying something here that should be wonderfully encouraging to every real Christian. Once again, that, that special term of endearment that we've heard him use a number of times comes up once more. Little children. And this just reveals how he sees these Christians who are under his charge. He says, listen, my little ones. At the incarnation, the God of the universe became a partaker of your human nature. He put on human flesh. Jesus did that. And then verse 2, And you in turn upon confession of Jesus as your Lord and Savior have become a, a partaker of the divine nature as the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you. You're now from God, little children. You've overcome those false teachers and their lies because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And all true Christians, all who are real, possess as a seal and a guarantee of their salvation the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so I could ask you this morning, does God live inside of you? And you would say, yes, yes by virtue of my faith in Jesus Christ, God has come to live inside of me by his spirit. Now, granted, it is one of the most amazing mysteries of our salvation that God would make his home inside of us by the Holy Spirit, but he has. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. John actually mentions this back up in the last verse of chapter uh, 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. If you're living for God... John says, then, then you are uh, abiding in him. And, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. If the spirit of God lives in you, you are going to live well for Jesus. That's the, that's the statement. If the spirit of God lives in you, then you're going to be living biblically for Jesus. And this is how John is actually thinking. He who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. Now, this is often quoted to make the point that the Holy Spirit is stronger than Satan, stronger than the demon realm, and that is certainly true. But that's really not John's focus here. His point is that the genuine Christian has the, has the stronger Holy Spirit in them, and this produces a listening and following after the gospel of Jesus and not after the false teacher. The Spirit's work in us leads us to the truth, overcoming the false teachers and their lies about Jesus. Your life is ordered. It is directed by the Spirit of God. You don't think and you don't act like the world thinks and acts. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives in you. Your life is Holy Spirit ruled. You will not walk. You will not live like the world lives. And so we can apply that test to every teacher. Do they live like, do they live like Jesus? Do they, do they desire to be Spirit-led? Or do they live like the world? In fact, here's how the Apostle Paul frames this same thought as John has. He does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, the one without Jesus, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly, they are foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. 
you need the Holy Spirit to understand the truth of God. And this is exactly what John says in verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. The false teacher doesn't have the Spirit of God. Their followers cling to, to them because they cling to the world's ideas, the world's teaching. They teach distorted, deceptive doctrines that diminish Jesus, demean God, and their lives reflect what they teach. If you, if you are a true teacher, you're going to be living for Jesus well. We can look at your life, and it'll hold up to that test. That's what John says. And then verse 6 closes out this section with a third test that will distinguish false teachers from real ones, essentially saying real teachers affirm the word of God as ultimate truth. We're from God, John says. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John 4, 6, in, in, in contrast to the demonically energized promoters of lies, spiritual lies and falsehood, real teachers are from God and they readily and they boldly affirm that God's word is their source of truth. Nothing else but the word of God. Through the use of that pronoun we in verse 6, John is primarily referring to himself and to other Holy Spirit inspired writers of scripture he says that that his letter as well as the completed revelation of the old and the new testament is the final authority by which christians must test all spiritual ideologies all spiritual messages john says all true teachers affirm and they accurately proclaim the word of god and if they don't do that don't follow them They are not out devising new spiritual strategies, new ways to get around the person of Jesus. If they're a true teacher of God, they're going to promote Jesus and they're going to promote the scriptures. And the one who's real, who really knows God, is going to listen to those who do that. Listen here means to embrace. Those who really belong to Jesus will refuse to embrace the spirit of error. Now, is that because we're smarter than everybody else? No. It's not because we're smarter than everybody else. It's because the Spirit of God is what? In us. And stronger than the false spirits, the false teachers around us. We've determined that unless what is taught is confirmed by the ultimate source of truth, the Word of God, we're going to reject it. We're going to reject it. By contrast, anyone who is not from God eats up the false teacher's lies as if they were true. As we affirmed earlier back at the top of your note page there in 2 Timothy 3, it is scripture alone that is joined to the power of God. And that is what equips us for every good work. You remember that? Yeah. Jesus himself says, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will what? Never pass away. Never. Matthew 24, 35. With the word of God as our standard of truth, we will always be able to tell the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so in a world that is rife with demonic false teaching, believers must constantly test the spirits, the teachers, the pastors, the professors, the writers, to discern who is of God and who is not.
John's three tests will help us in that regard. The first will be Christological. Does the teacher confess faith in the biblical Jesus? If they do, follow them. If they don't, they're out of here, right? The second is a behavioral test. Does the teacher live a life reflecting the Holy Spirit's character and values? If he or she does, follow them. If they don't, they're out of here, right? And the last is propositional test, really. Does the teacher make God's word their ultimate source for the things that they teach? If the teacher does that, follow them. If the teacher doesn't do that, they're out of here. And so using these tests, real Christians will always be able to discern the true spiritual riches of God from Satan's fool's gold. We want to be those who discern, yes? Let's pray together. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for these words which you have given to John first and now to us. We just say thank you so much for your truth. We thank you for your presence living inside of us as well. And we, we're just in awe that you, living God, would come to take up residence with us so that we can live a life that would bring great honor and glory to you. Lord, we just tell you that we know that we live in a dangerous world. There are lies that just swirl around us every day, and they come to us in every imaginable form. We know their source. We know where they originate from. We know they come from Satan as he seeks to deceive and distort and deny and cause us to doubt. And so we ask you to protect us against his schemes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we be great students of your word, always evaluating everything that we hear by the standard of your word and by who the person of Jesus really is. So thank you for all of this help today. May we walk out of these doors ready to live well for you and be really smart in a dangerous world. We'll say thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.